All right. Um, so we're continuing. We're working our way through First Timothy. Uh, slowly working our way through. And so we've been looking at just uh, Paul giving uh, how we're to be ordered in church and structured and things like that. So tonight we're going to look at how the church is the pillar of truth and how we're to stand firm on the truth and the importance of that and how that is what makes the church the church. And so we're going to be in First Timothy chapter 3. Verses 14 through 16. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to open up there, that's where we'll be. And uh, while you're turning there, I just want to ask you all a question. Um, anybody know how important the sun is? Most important thing. Most important thing. Okay. And anybody ever like looked into the importance of the sun? Like looked at facts about it? It's, it's fascinating. So here's just some quick facts about the sun. All right. The sun is 330,000 times the mass of the earth. It produces the same amount of energy as 100 billion hydrogen bombs every second. It keeps all eight planets in elliptical orbit because of its mass. And it heats the earth's surface just enough for the right temperature for liquid water, which a lot of people say is like the catalyst for life. So if that's how important the sun is, anybody want to guess what happens if the sun just up and disappeared we would not be here freeze Freeze to death okay yep no life would spin out of orbit yeah it would spin out of orbit no life would be able to um live on it and Mm -hmm. basically because of the lack of gravity the earth would almost implode Mm -hmm. because so I'm glad I'm glad you asked. So here's what would happen if the sun were just up and disappear. If we got rid of if we got rid of the sun, if we just thought, nah, we don't really need it. Here's what happens. All the eight planets would go flying off into space and our solar system would be in complete and utter chaos. Since it takes about eight minutes for the light from the sun to get to Earth, uh, we would have about eight minutes until everything went completely dark. Uh, with the mass of the sun and its effects on gravity, uh, it travels at the speed of light also. So that would travel about eight minutes. So within eight minutes, not only would it get really, really dark, uh, but it would also be a lot of gloom and doom because gravity would just be non-existent. Uh, photosynthesis would up and just stop. So all small plants would die in a few days. The earth's temperature would drop to, anybody want to guess, how many degrees after a week? Negative 50,000. Oh my God. It would drop to 32 degrees after a week. And then anybody want to guess by the end of the first year what the temperature would drop to? Negative 50. Negative 150 degrees. So the oceans would grow colder, it would freeze, and the earth would just become a big ice planet. So we would say that, no, because we'd all be dead. We wouldn't be able to ice skate. So we would look at it and say, we would see that and say, well, you know, now that I see all the facts and the importance of the sun, I would say the sun is very, very important. And without a sun, there is no solar system. And, and that is absolutely true. As soon as you get further away from the sun or remove the sun, then everything just goes into complete and utter chaos. And in a spiritual sense, that is the exact same way with the church and the gospel. That the further away we get from the gospel... The further things go to gloom and doom and everything turns into chaos. Or if you remove the gospels, the foundation of the church, you will not have a church. And it will just be in just shambles. 
And that's what we're going to look at tonight is the importance of the truth and the gospel and how we need to found the church and our lives on the gospel and how we need to defend the gospel at all costs and live it out. But here's the thing. All of us in here, we're all fallen, sinful human beings. And we have this natural tendency to kind of shy away from wanting to defend the gospel and, and living it out. It might be just because we don't like confrontation. We don't like confronting other people. It could be we live in a world that is continually growing more and more hostile to the gospel and Christianity. And maybe we just we, we don't want to uh, face that or we're just kind of scared of that or we're worried against going against the norm. But what we want to see tonight, the main passage of the the main point of this passage is that if we are to lead the way, as the series is called then we need to lead the way by being rooted in the truths of the gospel and to live out the truths of the gospel as individuals and as the church collectively. So that's what we're going to look at together. We're just going to look at four different verses, or sorry, three verses. And so starting in verse 14, so let's read these three together. Again, it's 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. So this is what it says. This is the word of the Lord. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray. So, Lord, we just come before you tonight, and we just are so thankful for the gospel. We're thankful how it just transforms lives and how it just brings lives back into order, back into right relationship with you. And so, Lord, as we come before this word, would you just humble all of us in here and submit to your authoritative word and to receive it just with joy and for it to just bear fruit in our lives as only the Holy Spirit can do to help us understand it and to grasp it and to see more of our need for Jesus and to live this out. And so I pray as we study this, would you help just uh, reveal sins that we need to repent of or turn over to you? Or would you give us truths from your word to encourage our souls as only you can? And so would you help us with this? Would you help us stay rooted in the gospel and to live it out and to grow more in that and more in our relationship with you every single day? So we can grow more in our relationship with you and grow more in our relationship with one another. And we can continue to live out our mission that you give us, which is to make Christ's name known. And we can only do any of this by Christ. So it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. So there's two main truths you're going to see that we're to get out of this passage. And so the first one we get is this. Is the church is to be founded on the truth. So the church is to be founded on the truth. So again, Paul is continuing through this. He's working his way through just talking about how there needs to be order in the church and how that confronts false doctrines. And so now he is writing to Timothy. So he can pastor this church in Ephesus. So he's saying, look, I would love to come to you. I would love to come see you. But just in case I can't come see you, I'm writing these things to you just so you know how people ought to behave in the household of God. So people know how they ought to act properly. So that word behave, it just means to behave in a certain manner. So we're to act in in a certain proper manner. And what that manner is, it's the gospel. That we're to behave according to what the gospel tells us to do and commands us to do. And so we need to behave in accordance with the gospel. So if we need to behave in accordance with that, just what that boils down to is this next truth, is that the church is to live out their faith. The church is to live out their faith. 
So if we are to behave properly in accordance with the gospel, that means we need to live out the gospel. We need to live out lives that have been transformed by grace, have been transformed by Christ. We don't want to just say, oh, I believe this, and then we have nothing back it up. Here's, here's an example that I just want you to think about. So imagine uh, you just know this person in your life. It could be whoever you want, all right? And they proclaim that they're a huge advocate for just living healthy, lean, living clean and healthy lives, you know, in every aspect of it. Now, imagine that person. They, they say they, they're all about being healthy. They're all about living healthy lives. They even wear apparel, you know, that's got like just shirts and everything that promotes that. They're wearing the, – it's in their bio on their social media. Like everything externally you would say, okay – they're, they're all about living healthy, clean lives and being in shape. But you never see them enter a gym or they might just enter a gym once in a blue moon, maybe a couple times a year or so. Uh, they constantly eat junk food. So whatever that wants to be, whether it be Taco Bell or pizza or whatever you name it. Uh, and they're constantly telling others they believe in a healthy lifestyle and they should do the same, even though they're not doing that. How likely are you to believe them when they say that they're a big advocate for healthy living? Not really. Why? Because they're promoting it. Okay. Why, why wouldn't you believe them? They're wearing, they're wearing all the nice apparel. They're wearing the right apparel. They're saying the right things. It's even in their bio on, their, on Instagram. Why, why don't you believe them? They're not living it out. They're not living it out. And it could be the same way. With Christians, where we'll wear the nice apparel that's got the verse on the sh- that's got the verse on the shirt. We'll wear the cross necklaces. Some people might have tattoos that have a cross on it or a verse that means a lot to them. They might have a verse in their bio on social media. They might say, "Yeah, I'm a Christian," but then they only go to church maybe once or twice a year, or just when it's convenient for them. Or when you look at them, you don't see a life that's that's aligned with what Scripture says. But then they'll go tell others, well, well you, should, you should act right because that's what Christians do when really they're, they're not living that out the same way as well. Is that we need to live out the gospel in every facet of our lives. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying we're perfect, okay? None of us are perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm working on many things in accordance with the gospel too. What I'm saying is that we're constantly living this out and we're striving towards that. Yes, we'll have bad days and we'll have days where we falter and fail, but that's the beauty of grace to help us each step of the way to show that, hey, look, this is something we take seriously and we're going to strive. And we might struggle at times, but we're going to live this out because we truly believe this. We want to behave accordingly with that. So we behave accordingly. And if we're to behave accordingly with the gospel, then Paul gives a few different truths about the church and what the gospel does to the church. So it says, the next thing it says in verse 15, that how one ought to behave in the household of God. So household in the first century means a little bit differently than what we would think. When you think household today, what, what comes to y'all's mind? Okay. Siblings. Okay. Yeah. What else? Okay. Everybody in your house. So normally you think like what your parents and your siblings, right? That's kind of the first thing that comes to mind is parents and siblings. Well, in the first century, it meant more than just your parents and siblings, but it encompassed extended family on top of that too. And it encompassed workers and stewards. And there was a, uh, it would almost be a small picture of society at large around them. And in fact, even within that own household of extended family and workers and stewards and other people, even that was diverse in just the age ranges and, and the skills that people had and different groups that people were a part of. And there was a master who oversaw all of that in the home. And so that is very much representative of the church. We have people from all different backgrounds, all different ages, all different skills, 
all coming together in the household. And there's one master, which is Jesus Christ. And we're all working to live for him and use our services and talents and gifts and abilities to worship him and whatever that may be. And so what this means is that if we're part of the household of God, is that the church is the family of God. The church is the family of God. As we constantly say, if we are in Christ, then we are family. So that's why when you hear some of us on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights, that's why you always hear us say last cast is family or LSM family. That's intentional because if we're in Christ, then we are family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Or if you ever notice it, when maybe you're smacking the ping pong ball a little too hard and it hits that, that metal frame back or the metal with the wooden frame back there that our lovely Jason Deberry put together did a great job for, you see that it says if one member suffer, we all suffer together. And if one member is honored, we all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Meaning that if we are in Christ, we are the family of God. We're brothers and sisters and we care for one another. We want to rejoice when there's exciting news to rejoice for. We want to take care of each other when people are hurting and struggling because we are the family of God. That's what the gospel does. It makes us brothers and sisters, regardless of our background or where we come from. But next, if that's not already amazing enough, he says this next one. So we're the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The church of the living God. So what this means is this next truth. The church is where God's presence dwells. The church is where God's presence dwells. Now, here's what I mean by that. The church is not a building. The church is the people that make up the building, okay? So the church is us as Christians. So wherever we're meeting at, it doesn't matter. We are the church where that is. And so what used to be in the Old Testament is it used to be there would be a temple and it would be a one set place. And that is where God's presence would dwell. But now, because of Jesus, because he lived the perfect sinless life, and because he died on the cross, and because he ascended back into heaven, the Holy Spirit has come, and now indwells everyone that believes in Christ. So now God's presence is lived within each person that believes in Christ, which is the church. And so just a few verses that explain this. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, where it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, but you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Or 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Or lastly, 2 Corinthians 6.16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. So think about, just think about this for a moment. If you've truly turned away from your sins, and if you believed in Jesus, then the creator of the universe, the creator of everything you see around you, lives within you. Just think about that for a moment. The creator of everything, the one that died for us, we wanted nothing to do with him. The Holy Spirit of the living God lives within you. That, that's astounding to think about and an amazing thing to think about. But that's the truth of the gospel. That if we've repented of our sins and believed in Christ, not only are we family, but also we have God living within us, guiding us every step of the way. And the last truth it gives us about the gospel, it says a pillar and buttress of the truth. So some translations, um, instead of pillar or buttress, might say foundation of the truth is what it might say. And so... Pillars, buttresses, foundations, they're meant to give support to a structure. 
They're meant to help support a building, help support a structure. And a foundation is meant to be what the rest of the building is built upon. So the truth that it's talking about, the pillar and buttress of the truth, that truth is God's word, okay? So this truth is talking about God's word, which is the gospel. So if we're to support the truth, and it's supposed to support things, then we see this next truth. The church is the defender and proclaimer of truth. The church is the defender and proclaimer of the truth. So we, since we've been entrusted with the gospel, we are to defend it at all costs against any false teachings that will come in and, and mess with that and the beauty of that. But we're also supposed to proclaim that truth to other people. And we're to build our lives upon that. And so anything to face, God's word should be the first place we go to. So let me ask you these few questions just for you to reflect on and think about personally. Are you building your life upon God's word? Or when you have questions or when you face difficulties, where is the first place that you turn? Are you turning to other people or are you turning to God and his word first? The word must be the first place we go in everything that we do. Any questions we have, any difficulties we may be wrestling with, God's word must be essential to everything. We see that through several verses. Hebrews 4.12 says the word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. We see in 2 Corinthians th- or 2 Timothy, sorry, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all scripture is breathed out, or in other words, is inspired by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for teaching us, for correcting us, and for training us up in righteousness and equipping us for every good work that God has called us to as a follower of him. Or Isaiah 55, 11, where it says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish for which I purchase it. For it shall succeed in the thing for which I use it for. So if God's word goes out, it'll never return void. When we live out God's word, it'll never come back empty. When we obey God's word, it'll never return void against us. So we need to study God's word and we need to defend God's word at all costs and live it out because it is profitable in all those ways. But again, we're not supposed to proclaim it. We're supposed to defend it. So it's hard to proclaim the word and defend the word if we're not studying God's word and reading God's word. So we have to make sure we're constantly reading God's word and studying it, wrestling with it together. Because here's just one. In 1 Peter 3.15, how it says we're to honor Christ in our hearts. But then it says it's always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So if we're to give an account for what we believe in, then we got to know what we believe. And we got to study what we believe and be able to give people a reason for that and defend that. So people know this is why we believe, this is why we come together, this is why we come on a Wednesday night and study God's word together. Because it's supposed to be central to our lives. Because the church is supposed to be founded on the truth. And so if the church is supposed to be founded on the truth, we see the second main point we're supposed to get out of this, which is the gospel is the foundation. So the gospel is supposed to be the foundation of the church, of all of our lives and the church. But that is what the gospel needs to be. And once we get away from the gospel, as we saw earlier in this passage at the end of chapter 1, and we move away from the gospel, it shipwrecks people's faith. And so we want to make sure we know what is the gospel. And so what Paul writes next in verse 16, uh, at this time would actually be like a hymn of that day that they might use. Now, some of it's lost a little bit in translation between Greek and English just because it's kind of awkward in some ways. But... What we still know is that there's core truths in this 
that we need to understand because it is core to us as Christians if we are to understand our faith and to live this out. That's why it says, great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. That word confess means just in an undeniable manner. It means that, that, we, that we must, in a way that it must be admitted. Meaning we are so confident, we are so great on this. Though the great is this mystery of the gospel, which has now been revealed to everyone. That we are so sure of it, that, that it's undeniable matter, that this is what we confess. It also means that these are truths that are an undeniable matter. We cannot budge from these truths. These are the truths of the gospel. And if we budge from these truths, then we budge from what is core to the Christian faith. So here's what we see. We see these few different ones where it talks about the Son of God. As you see in your notes, that the Son of God, like all these truths relate to Christ because all of it points to Christ. And so it says first, he was manifested in the flesh. So Paul starts with the incarnation of Christ, which means this. First truth, the Son of God was revealed in human flesh. The Son of God was revealed in human flesh. So we see these truths just uh, through different passages in Scripture. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or 1 Peter 1.20, where it says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Or in Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, it just talks about how, look, that Jesus came to save us from our sins and break the power of death that Satan had over us. So he had to become like us in every way. He never surrendered his divinity, but he became like us in every way so he can empathize what we're going through and he can break the bonds of sin and death that Satan had over us. It said he didn't come to serve angels, but us to help us with that. So we see this, that he was revealed in human flesh, that God made himself known and revealed himself through taking on flesh and revealing himself among us. The next one it says, it says he was vindicated by the spirit. So some translations might say he was justified by the spirit. What that word means, it just means to be justified, to become judicially vindicated. Just so having complied with the requirements of the law. So what it means by vindicated by the Spirit, it just means he's obeyed all the laws and what it gave him, all the commands of that. He's complied with every last bit of it. So think about this. Not only did Jesus take on flesh, and he lived under the law. Anybody want to guess how many laws there are in the Old Testament? 400. Keep going. 600. Keep going a little more. What would you say? 630-something. A little lower. 623. Keep lower. A little lower. Lower. Little lower. 615. Little lower. 613. Think about this. There are 613 Old Testament laws. And if we were still living in Old Testament times, we would live under all 613 Old Testament laws. And we would probably break a good majority of them. But as we saw earlier, the, the law reveals our sin. It doesn't save us from our sin. And so it was pointing to Jesus. And so Jesus perfectly obeyed all 613 laws. And so because he obeyed perfectly all 613 laws and he's without sin, that made him the perfect and worthy sacrifice to die for all of our sins that were revealed by all 613 laws. And so because he did that, that means he was resurrected and overcame the effects of sin and sin itself and death and every aspect that comes with that. And so because he was vindicated by the Spirit, there's this truth. The Son of God was bodily resurrected 
by the Holy Spirit. So the Son of God was bodily resurrected by the Holy Spirit. It's important that we say bodily resurrected, that it was not just a spiritual resurrection, but a bodily resurrection. There was this physical body as well that was resurrected, showing that he has overcome sin and all the effects of sin. And how amazing that is. And you know what we see? The same truth in Scripture we see in Romans. I believe it's Romans 8, 5, where it says the same Holy Spirit that rose this Jesus, that rose Jesus from the grave bodily, raises us from the dead spiritually. So the same Holy Spirit that justified Christ is the same Holy Spirit that justifies us when we believe in Christ. So he was justified or vindicated by the Spirit. Next, it says he was seen by angels. So Paul continues with what happened after Jesus' resurrection. So we're slowly working our way through this. And it just means this. The Son of God is testified by the angels. The Son is testified by the angels. So what it means is just angels have always testified about Jesus. Think about when, when Jesus was being born, he was born in the manger. Who appeared to all the shepherds out in the field? See? Angels. Angels came, and it was a multitude of angels that was proclaiming him that Christ has been born. In Matthew 28, 1 through 7, or in Luke 24, 4, the angels are the ones that announce his resurrection. It says there were these people in dazzling, gleaming clothes. See, he is no longer here, for he is risen. That is angels that testified about this. Or in Acts 1, 9 through 11, that when Jesus ascended back up into heaven, angels witnessed that. And as the disciples are kind of staring up in the sky, like, what's going on? Like, what's happening? The angels are the one testifying, saying, look, like, Jesus just ascended back up into heaven. What are you doing? Get moving. Go, go tell others about Jesus. Go tell others how he has been risen from the grave and he's ascended. You can believe in him and join him in heaven, too. What, get a move on. So angels have testified about his birth, his resurrection, and his ascension. And so the testimony of the angels solidifies even more just the assurance that we have, this undeniable facts about Christ and reinforces him being resurrected. So next, it says in verse 16, he was proclaimed among the nations. So not only does Paul talk about the angels' testimony, but now he moves to the disciples and our testimony, which is when the Son of God must be shared with the world. So the Son of God must be shared with the world. So this started all the way with the earliest disciples that Jesus called and has been continuing on through today and has been given to us today and onward. That we are to share the gospel with other people. This started with the earliest disciples and it continues with us as disciples of Christ today in the 21st century at our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, in our, wherever we go. That we are to share Christ with the world. Just a few verses we see, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, which is otherwise known as the Great Commission. It's Jesus' last words, where it says, I am with you always, and that he has all the power of heaven and on earth, and he's entrusting to us that we're to go make disciples of all nations. And so he has all the power, and we're walking with Christ's power, and he's with us wherever we go. Why? To go and make disciples, to tell other people about Jesus so they can follow him too. And they can go tell other people about Jesus, so they can invite them to follow him, and they follow him too, on and onward. Or in Acts 1.8, it says the word to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. So what that means is Jerusalem is just where we're at personally. So we're to be witnesses in Rutherford County, in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, Las Casas, Tennessee, Milton, Tennessee, this little area. We're to be witnesses here. We're to be witnesses in our schools. At Oakland, at Franklin Road, wherever we go, we're to be witnesses there. Central Magnet, all these other places. We're to be witnesses there. 
And it says to Judea and Samaria. So that's thoroughly going outwards. That would be, let's say, the state of Tennessee. That would be some partnerships we might be coming up soon with in northwest Indiana or Chicago, making Christ known there. And then to all the ends of the earth. So that's why partnerships in Mexico and Nicaragua, we want to continue to go outward because we're to share the gospel with the entire world because the entire world could be saved if they repent and believe in Christ. Or lastly, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, where if we are saved by the gospel, then God now says, all right, you've been saved by the gospel. I'm now entrusting you with this gospel. And you're to turn around and go into the world and you're to share the same message that saved you with others so they can be saved too. So he's saying, all right, you're saved. All right, I'm taking this. Now you're to go back into Oakland Middle School, Oakland High School, Central Magnet, Franklin Road, or wherever. You're supposed to go there to your jobs. You're going to go share with your coworkers, your classmates, your teammates, your neighbors. You're going to go share with their, and you're going to be my ambassador in those places. You're supposed to represent Christ and the kingdom of heaven in those areas and to point people to Jesus. So here's a few questions for you to think about. Are you sharing the gospel? Are you sharing the gospel? Are you sharing the gospel with family members, friends, classmates, teammates, coworkers, neighbors, even strangers that you run into? Because here's the thing. Think about this. If no one proclaimed the gospel to us, then, then we wouldn't be Christians right now. If no one ever took time to tell us about Christ and how we can be saved. And so we're commanded by Christ same one that saved us. We're commanded by him to go and share him and his finished work on the cross with the world. That's why it's called the Great Commission, not the Great Suggestion. This wasn't Jesus suggesting, saying, yeah, when you get around to it, uh, go make disciples. He's saying, no, like, we are to go make disciples to all the ends of the earth. So he's proclaimed among the nations. And then next, it says, believed on in the world. So because of Jesus and his finished work on the cross, He is being believed on in the world around us, even to this very day. And the reason he's being believed on in the world is this next truth. The Son of God is the Savior of the world. So the reason we share Christ with the world is because he is the Savior of the world. That's why we share with them. That's what we see in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, where Jesus says he took on flesh, yet he never surrendered his divinity, but he never used it to to elevate himself in any way, but he took the form of a servant and was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And because he died on the cross and was bodily resurrected, then it said God gave him the name above every name, justified by the spirit, as we just saw, and that everyone on heaven and on earth and under the earth will one day bow their knees to him and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. Why? Because he is the savior of the world. And so that means if he is the savior of the world, the implications for us personally is that means he's the savior of our own personal world. Which means he has saved us from the dominion of darkness, kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of light. That if we have believed in him, we're no longer slaves to Satan or sin, but we are servants of Christ. Which means we must live and obey whatever he tells us with that. If he is our savior, then we owe our lives to him. We saw that earlier, that we are the temple of the living God. Why? Because we were bought with a price. And we're not our own. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and through me. So if we are a follower of Christ, then we are to have Christ live in and through us. So let me ask you this for you to reflect on. Do you live a life that is evidence of being rescued from sin? When people look at you, do they see radical change in your life? Where they see that person has been saved by sin. 
They don't know who they once were, and now I see who they are now. And something has radically changed in their lives. Here's another one. Are you submitting every part of your life over to Christ? And I mean every part. Are you submitting your dreams over to him and what he would have you do with your life? Are you submitting all of your relationships to him and what he would have you do to glorify and honor him? Are you submitting whatever sports you're involved in, theater, whatever it's involved, are you submitting that over to him? Are you submitting even every aspect of your school and how you act in school and your schoolwork and everything involved with that over to him? Are you submitting all of your speech, all of your words, your thought life, your actions, everything you do, are you submitting over to him and saying, does this glorify Christ? Because if he is the savior of the world and he's the savior of our lives, then we should live lives that have been saved from our sin and no longer want to live in sin, but point people to him. And lastly, we see this last part. It says, he has been taken up in glory. So this is honestly a part that sometimes I feel like people forget a part of the gospel, and that's the ascension of Christ. So there's where Jesus died on the cross, and there's where Jesus was buried in the tomb, and then he was bodily resurrected. Yes, it was finished, but then he ascended back up into heaven at the right hand of the Father. And because he ascended back up into heaven, that means the Holy Spirit came down and now lives within us, And so we can believe in Christ and live for Christ. And so without Jesus sending back up into heaven, the Holy Spirit wouldn't have come down and indwelt within us. So the last part, he was taken up into glory, which means the Son of God has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. So Jesus ascending back up into heaven and him kind of sitting down at the right hand of the Father, that was almost like his exclamation point. Like, it is done. It is done, and now anyone who calls on my name, they shall be saved. But not only that, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father right now and intercedes for us. Which means we pray to him, he prays on our behalf. So think about this. Whenever we sin, whenever we sin, we mess up, we pray to God for forgiveness. And God says, why should I forgive them? Jesus says, because they're mine. Because I bought them at a price. They're covered in my blood. And they have believed in me. And so he, he is our advocate before God in heaven. Or when our hearts break for certain people around us, we know people are lost, we're praying to Christ, the same Christ that died for that person. That right now, as we speak, Christ is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us and the world around us. And that's an encouraging truth. But here's the thing. This also means that if Jesus ascended back up into heaven, that means one day he's going to come back. He's going to come back one day. And so if he's going to come back one day, that brings a few questions for us for you to think about. Do you live your life expectant of the return of Christ? That Christ could have come back at any moment. Or you just go, ah, you know, I'll just kind of do my thing. Maybe I'll get to it next week, a few years down the road. Maybe kind of once I graduate and kind of settle down, maybe then I'll start kind of focusing on those things. If let's say Jesus was to come back tomorrow, at any point tomorrow, you don't know when, would you be proud of what he found you were doing when he came back? What would you be in the middle of doing if he came back? That that's, should be a constant thing of us. What are we constantly doing? Or if Jesus came back right now, we go, ah. Uh, I really don't want to catch me in this moment. Or would it be something where it's like we're living for Christ on a daily basis? Or on top of that, if we know he's going to return one day and judge the world, does that propel us to go out and tell others how they are to be saved? It should propel us one to go out and tell other people saying he's going to come back one day. 
And that'll be it. But you can be saved today. That you can be saved from your sins right now. That should propel us outward, knowing that he's going to come back one day. Why? Because the gospel should produce a radical change in our lives. So let me, let me kind of end it this way. To, let, let me give you this scenario to think about. Let's say, okay, y'all were in here and you were waiting at 6 o'clock. And, okay, why hasn't that started? You know, Aaron's here, you just got done, but I haven't showed up yet. And then I kind of just come barreling through the door here, come up on stage and go, all right, huh, sorry guys, I was, I was in a little bit of a rush. I got stuck on 96 um, and I had, my car broke down. I had to fix the wheel. And so as I'm fixing it, uh, one, of the, one of the bolts came out, went to the middle of the road. And so I went to go get it and a big old 18-wheeler came flying by and hit me. But I, I, got, I put the bolt back on, I got it set, I'm right here. I'm good now, so let's get started. What would you say? Yeah. <laughs> right, you would say, hold on. You got, you, you, what happened? You got hit by an 18-wheeler and you're just standing there and you're not roadkill? So you would think, okay, something that giant hit you and did not leave a single mark. Something's off here. In the same way, If we have had an encounter, an experience with the living God, with Jesus Christ himself, there should be some sort of impact that's happened on our lives where if we have an encounter with Christ, it should not mean we leave unchanged. Because God, let me tell you, God is much bigger than an 18-wheeler. If he has made an impact on our life, they should be evidence in our lives that it has impacted us and made a change in our lives. That if we say we are a follower of Christ, then there should be evidence of that. So let me ask you this. Are you daily believing in and living out the gospel? Are you daily believing in and living out the gospel? Has the gospel had a radical impact and change on your life? Are you founding your life on the truth of the gospel? And are you living that out? Our lives are to be rooted in the truths of the gospel. Our lives are to live out the truths of the gospel. And if we have believed in the gospel, then there should be a radical change in our lives. Because if we are to lead the way in the faith, then we need to lead the way by believing in the gospel, being rooted in the gospel and the truths of it, and then seeing how those truths are lived out in our everyday lives and going out into the world around us, telling other people about him. Let's pray. So, Lord, we just thank you for the beauty of the gospel. We thank you that that because of you, Lord Jesus, and because of what you did on the cross, we can be considered sons and daughters of the living God. We can be considered brothers and sisters here in this room, in Christ. That we have the spirit of the living God living within us. And that we are sure of all these things. We confess this because we have confidence in this. We're thankful that Jesus, you took on flesh and dwelt among us. That you obeyed all the commandments we couldn't and died on the cross, paying the penalty for all of our sins for all of time. And that you were bodily resurrected, overcoming sin and death and all the effects of sin. That you were seen and testified by angels. 
And because you made an impact on us, we go and testify about your finished work to others, to the world around us. Why? Because you are the savior of the world. And that we go out and proclaim living expectant of your imminent return. And so would you help us now, Lord? By your grace, would you help us root and found our lives on the gospel? Would you help the truths of the gospel impact every facet of our lives? And then for us to live out the gospel in our everyday lives. It's only by your grace we can do any of this. It's only by the power of Christ we can do any of this. So it's in Christ's powerful, transformative, saving name we pray. Amen.